All right, good morning, Fellowship Franklin. How's everyone doing today? Awesome, good stuff. All right, as before, you have a, a handout. I think it's in the seat back in front of you. If you wanna track with the notes, there's kind of a quick sketch of where we're headed today in the seat back in front of you. And today, it's with uh, excitement and also with sadness for me uh, that we are wrapping up our five-week series on apologetics. I have had a riot being here with you guys over the last five weeks. Uh, I'm grateful for Fellowship Bible for allowing me to be kind of a guest speaker of sorts uh, over, the last, uh, over the last few weeks. Um, this five-week series, it was intended to help all of us to be better prepared to be able to give an answer to anyone who asks us to give the reason for the hope that we have. But we are to do this with gentleness and with respect, uh, as per 1 Peter 3.15. We've spent a number of weeks focused on the credibility of the New Testament. In fact, some might say we spent a disproportionate amount of time looking at the New Testament. Why have we done that? Well, guys, it's in the New Testament that we find the first-person historical accounts of a man named Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the whole ballgame from a religious perspective. And the reason why we spent time developing our case for the New Testament is that every now and then when you're sharing your faith with someone and you're describing this person of Jesus, the person that you're discussing Christ with might say, I don't really trust that book you're referring to. I don't believe the Bible's accurate. I don't believe the Bible contains accurate historical reporting, so on and so forth. So we've spent several weeks going over what the objections to the New Testament are so you can have confidence that you're on firm footing when you share your faith and tell the story of Christ. And as a friend of mine, T.C. Cannon, mentioned to me as we were kind of collaborating over what this five weeks should look like, she said, you know, if you make a really good case for the New Testament, you kind of get Jesus thrown in. And I really agree with that. If you, if you build a strong case for the New Testament, you can't miss Jesus because he's there in very bright red letter words. So we're gonna wrap up our five-week series today. We're gonna get into the New Testament and we're gonna take a look at who this Jesus of Nazareth was. And I wanna kick us off by acknowledging something that's highly offensive to our modern ears in our culture. And what am I saying? There is a claim that you will hear Christians make from time to time, not that Jesus is a way to salvation. Oftentimes you'll hear Christians say that Jesus is the only way to salvation. And to our pluralistic society that values things like tolerance and diversity and acceptance above all else, such a claim that Jesus is the only way uh, it's, let's just say it's offensive in the highest degree. Our prevailing mindset in our society today is one of pluralism, and pluralism understood in the modern context is just that it's, it's that all religions are equally valid paths to God, that all religions are equally true. And I wanna tell you that anyone who seems to suggest otherwise in word or in thought uh, in our modern times, if you don't think that all religions are equally true, you're considered bigoted, you're considered hateful, you're considered intolerant, which is kind of ironic because when we put forth our views, we're considered intolerant, but when someone else puts forth their views, they're considered right. 
And this cartoon is intended to kind of depict what this feels like in our, in our culture today. There's kind of a hippie looking guy on the left that says, I say there is no God. And he's celebrated for being a free thinker and very courageous. But then when a guy with a cross around his neck says, I, I think there is a God, I say there is a God. Well, what right do you have to say that? Oh, that's judgmental, right? It seems almost hypocritical when you look at the standard of our culture that uh, the tolerance thing seems to flow in one direction right now. And I would argue this is even found within religious circles, surprisingly. Uh, I found a quote from a rabbi a number of years ago, a number of years ago, a man named Shumli Botich. He says this, I am absolutely against any religion that says that one faith is superior to another. I don't see how that is anything different than spiritual racism. How's that for an emotionally charged word? It's a way of saying that we are closer to God than you are, and that's what leads to hatred. This is a rabbi saying this. Isn't that fascinating? This pluralistic mindset is pervading our culture. Now, I wanna take a moment before launching into my investigation of Jesus just to expose what I believe to be a fundamental flaw in this pluralistic way of thinking. Again, pluralism is the idea not that every religion should be tolerated. Pluralism today means that every religion is equally valid and equally true. And let me tell you why that's actually not the case. According to Islam, when you read the Quran, according to Islam, Jesus never died on a cross and he never claimed to be the son of God. But according to the Bible, he did. Can we agree that those are two very opposing statements? They cannot both be true. Was Jesus the promised Messiah of Israel that the Old Testament predicted? Well, if he was, then the Christians have it right. If he wasn't, then the Jews have it right. And according to the Quran, he never claimed to be the Messiah, so the question doesn't matter. Well, he either claimed it or he didn't. He was either right about it or he wasn't, but everybody here can't be equally true. They can't all have equally valid viewpoints. Somebody's wrong. Now, they can all be wrong, but can we agree, at least in principle, based on the law of non-contradiction, that everybody can't be right? Can we agree on that? Pluralism doesn't work, it's a fallacy. Now, some people will say, well, Mike, your religion's true for you, but my religion's true for me. I like that one. Try applying that way of thinking on your next tax return. You live in a pretend world if you think that truth is relative, right? So you're in your accountant's office next year, it's April, you're filing your taxes, and the accountant says, you made this much money last year, therefore you owe this much tax. And you say to your accountant, that might be true for you. That's not true for me. What's your accountant gonna say to you? He's gonna look at you with kind of a smirk and say, okay, enjoy your audit. <laughs> Guys, truth is not relative. And it's disheartening to know this philosophy is taught all the way up in the academic institutions, even in colleges and universities, they're saying that truth is relative. I'm, I'm having a hard time stomaching the fact that my oldest daughter is gonna go to university next year and I'm gonna shell out money to a place that will teach this. It is absolutely false. Now, let me get off that high horse for a second and get back on task. We're gonna spend today looking at Jesus. 
And I wanna go to the first person accounts. I wanna go to the New Testament documents to learn about this guy. Why? Because these were the eyewitnesses that walked with him, that lived with him, that reported on him. And I wanna see what the New Testament says about Jesus. Did Jesus really say that he was the only way to salvation or did he not? And if he did say that, was there a reason for that or was Jesus just bigoted and spiteful and hateful? Well, let's take a look at this. First verse I wanna look at is John 14, six. These are red letter words. This is Jesus speaking in the first person and he says this. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Seems fairly narrow. Peter, one of Jesus' disciples in the book of Acts is quoted as saying this. He, referring to Jesus, is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which has become the cornerstone. Listen to this. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. That's Peter. What does John say? John's another one of uh, Jesus' disciples. John says, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father but the one who confesses the Son has the Father also. And then Paul, who wrote the majority of the New Testament, Paul says this, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. Did Jesus teach that he is the only way to heaven? Did his disciples who walked with him, followed him, learn from him, think similarly and teach similarly? Yep. They all seem equally narrow in their view about salvation. So yes, this is taught in the New Testament. But what's unmistakable as we look at these verses, there's something else that's between the lines here that you trip on because it's so glaring on the page. You see, guys, the central issue of Christianity, it's not the ethical teaching of Jesus. It's the identity of Jesus the question that all of us need to answer is, who was Jesus of Nazareth? That seems to be at the core of the message of the New Testament. And you need to know that this is different. This is unique from other religious views. Uh, we talked in, I think it was week two, we looked at some of the ways that the Bible is different from every other religion. This is one of those ways. You see, when we look at most other religions, the founder or the head of that religion is pointing to their ethical teaching. They're, they're pointing to their teaching. They don't point to themselves. Now, let me give you an example. Muhammad never says that unless you receive me as Allah's final prophet, that you will die in your sins. Muhammad doesn't say that. Buddha doesn't say that unless you receive me as the one who brought you the four noble truths, that you will die in your sins. He doesn't say that. All of these other religious figures, they're teachers. They point the way. How is Jesus different? Jesus says, I am the way. Starkly different in Christianity. According to Jesus, it's the decision that you make about his identity that will determine where you will spend eternity. John 8, 24 says it very clearly. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So what's unique about Jesus' identity? If you were to ask someone on the street, let's say you walk out of here today and go to lunch and 
I forget, you know, you're at old Charlie's or someplace for lunch and you reach over to the table next to you and say, hey, what do you know to be true about Jesus? We're in the South. This is kind of a churched part of the world, right? And maybe they'd give you a good answer. I don't know. But I know I grew up in Western Canada, a place called Calgary, Alberta. I had only darkened the door of a church twice before my 21st birthday. I saw two cousins get married in a church. And so I never knew the story of the gospel. I never heard any of Jesus' teaching, so to speak. And so I was trying to think back as I was preparing for today, how would I have answered the question, who is Jesus? Who is this dude? And I might've said something like, well, I've heard Jesus was a good man. I've heard Jesus was a respected teacher. I've heard Jesus was kind to the poor. And while these things might be true, you've got to understand that these descriptions don't really fit who he was. They completely miss the mark, in fact. I say that because when you look at the New Testament and you discover what Jesus said about himself, there's no way that you could determine that this guy is a good teacher. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. Jesus had a pretty radical self-understanding. If we go to John chapter eight, in verse 58 specifically, we see that Jesus is having an exchange with the Jews. It kind of becomes a verbal tussle, so to speak. They're having a somewhat of a heated exchange. And Jesus says to the Jews, uh, something to the effect of, Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. And the Jews respond back, Abraham? How do you know our father, Abraham? You're not even 50 years old. And Jesus says back to them, truly I say unto you, before Abraham was born, I am. Now it's kind of a strange enigmatic, uh, enigmatic response, but we know that the Jews understood what he was saying because they reached down after that to pick up rocks to kill him. What does Jesus' response mean? Jesus is invoking for himself the divine personal name of God that we first see back in the book of Exodus when Moses is encountering the burning bush. Moses encounters God in this burning bush and uh, God gives Moses this quest, this mission. He says, you are to go free the Hebrews uh, from Pharaoh. And he says, okay. He says, uh, who should I tell them has sent me? And the burning bush responds back, I am. Jesus is invoking the divine personal name of God for himself. And again, we know unmistakably the Jews understood what he was saying. He was claiming equality with God. And that's why they picked up stones to kill him. In Mark chapter two, Jesus walks by a paralytic man who's been a cripple ever since he was young or he hasn't been able to walk. And Jesus walks by him and he says, my son, your sins are forgiven. And there's someone else kind of in the audience right next to him and says, your sins are forgiven. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And to prove that his his uh, claim to forgive sins wasn't some hollow thing. Jesus then went ahead and healed the paralytic. The guy picks up his mat and walks away. But he says to the man, your sins are forgiven. That's a divine prerogative. As the man rightly questioned, who can forgive sins but God alone? And then in his trial, Jesus was arrested. He's brought forth and he's, he's being given a trial. A whole bunch of false witnesses are paraded across trying to make some uh, uh, accusation stick to Jesus and they can't do it. Finally, Caiaphas, the high priest, says enough of this, right? Caiaphas looks at this and says, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? Note Jesus' word choice in his response. I am, and you shall see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power 
and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus quotes verbatim Daniel chapter seven, where it talks about the return of the Messiah of Israel. And we know that Caiaphas understood what Jesus was saying because he rent his clothes and says, blasphemy, we need no further witnesses. This man has condemned himself. Why? Because he claimed to be co-equal with God. Guys, when someone says that Jesus is a wise teacher or that says that he's a good man, do you agree with me? It kind of misses the mark because good teachers and wise men don't claim to be God. This guy fits in a completely different category as we're gonna look at right now. There's, there's two options for Jesus. He either was God's son or co-equal with God, or he wasn't. And if he wasn't, he either wasn't co-equal with God and he knew it, or he was not co-equal with God and he didn't know it. So there's a total of three possible buckets that we can put Jesus in, but he has to necessarily fit one of these three viewpoints. The first possibility is this, that Jesus said that he was the son of God, but he was wrong and he knew he was wrong. All right, so what do we, what do we call someone that says something about himself that he knows is false? What do we call that person? That's a liar, absolutely. The first possible scenario for Jesus is that he was a liar. But the problem with this is that Jesus showed impeccable character. You see, there's a lot of different things that are said about Jesus, but it makes it hard to build the case that Jesus was a liar. The first is a quotation from Peter. Peter is one of Jesus' disciples who walked with him and lived with him, did life with him for three years, day in and day out. And at the end of his time walking with Jesus, he described Jesus as a lamb without spot or blemish. How many of your friends could say that about you? My uh, good friend Roger uh, in Nashville, he was in the first service this morning and I was reminiscing a moment from a few years ago when my name was put forth as a potential elder candidate for Fellowship Bible Church. And one of the things that happens in that vetting process is they say, okay, we're, we're talking to Mike Vote about eldership. If anyone has anything that they know about Mike that we should know about it, come forth. And Roger looks at my wife, Lynn, and says, should we sink the ship right now or what? Because Roger knows me well. He's seen my sins. I have no pretense. I am a sinful guy. I get it. But Roger, having walked closely with me, who knows me better than most, he's like, yeah, uh, I have no, no, uh, no false understanding about Mike. Yeah, he is, in fact, a sinful guy. Peter said about Jesus, he was a lamb without spot or blemish. Paul says of Jesus that he was a man who knew no sin, when Jesus was arrested, John 8, 46, he asked his accusers, which one of you convicts me of sin? At his trial, no one could come forth with, anything, with any accusation that could stick. And then finally, uh, when Caiaphas hands Jesus over to Pilate for Pilate to sentence him, Pilate interacts with Jesus and then gives him back and says, I find no basis for a charge against this man. You guys, how could we conclude that Jesus was a liar in light of the light, in light of the life that he lived. It doesn't fit. So that theory is false. We can't conclude from the historical evidence that Jesus was a liar. Well, what's the next possibility? The next possibility is that Jesus truly believed that he was equal with God and he was wrong, but he didn't know he was wrong. Now, let me sketch out this example for a second. 
John, imagine you're walking home from church today and your next door neighbor, Walter, meets you on your driveway. And he comes up to John and says, John, I am living water. If you drink from me, you will never thirst again. He goes up to Jeannie and says, Jeannie, I am the bread of life. If you eat from me, you will never hunger. He goes up to you and says, if you believe in me, I will forgive your sins, right? My friends, if he comes up to you and says, I am the preexistent one. Before Abraham was ever born, I am. Well, what's John gonna say in this moment? Walter, why don't you come sit down just, just for a minute? C come sit down, take a load off. I can tell it's been a hard morning for you, right? We're gonna assume that something's wrong with Walter, right? Walter, did you, did you forget to take your medication this morning? Are you doing all right? Let's go ahead and sit you down. I'm gonna go ahead and call the nice men who bring the straight jackets and they'll come pick you up. All will be well. What do we think of Walter if he starts saying these things to you? He's a what? He's a, he's a lunatic. He's crazy. This guy's one fry short of a happy meal, right? Is this who Jesus was? Was Jesus a lunatic? Guys, when you look at the historical record, this isn't how people responded to Jesus. Folks were transfixed by the words that he spoke. He did not speak the words of a madman. People were overwhelmed by the power of what Jesus had to say. And in Jesus' day, people took him seriously because they saw him doing things that were consistent with his claims. My friends, this doesn't fit either. No one thought Jesus was a madman. And so if it doesn't make sense that Jesus was wrong and he knew it, if it doesn't make sense that Jesus was wrong and he didn't know it, then there's only one option that remains. He wasn't a liar and he wasn't a lunatic. There's one final option, and that is that Jesus was Lord, that he knew what he was talking about. Now, this is a huge claim, huge, and one that would have to be backed up. So how did Jesus back up his claim to be Lord? Well, in the New Testament, in the eyewitness accounts, we find that he offered unique and repeated confirmations of his claim. Specifically, he performed numerous nature miracles, including what I call the grand miracle, which is that he died on a cross on Friday and raised himself back to life. The grand miracle, he resurrected from the dead. He performed numerous miracles throughout his ministry. That's number one. Number two, he lived a life without sin. Not a single sin in his entire lifetime. There were no perfections in his conduct. That's number two. And number three, Jesus fulfilled dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of very specific predictions about the Messiah of Israel. He fulfilled all of those in his life. Guys, these predictions were written hundreds of years before he was born. Did he back up his proof? Did he back up his claim to be Lord? Yes, he did. But let's start connecting the dots on the question of this morning. Why was Jesus a religious exclusivist? Why was he not tolerant of other religious views? Why did he go around saying things like, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but through me? Well, to get our head wrapped around that question, we need to understand why did Jesus even come? And I will tell you that he came because humanity has a problem. All of mankind is conscious of a gap that exists between man and God. All of us are mindful of this. 
We're aware of uh, what we call a moral law or a standard of conduct that's been kind of impressed upon us, that's been imprinted on us. All of us are aware of how we are supposed to behave and we are mindful that we don't behave that way. And it doesn't matter where you were born. You could be born in, in Timbuktu, you could be born in Turkey, right? You could be born in Toronto. It doesn't matter where in the world you were born. We all have this sense of moral obligation that's hard printed onto our consciousness. And I'll refer again to Professor C.S. Lewis because I think he says it better than most. Lewis says, human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave a certain way and they cannot really get rid of it. Something appears in me, in, something appears in me as law urging me to do right and making me feel responsible and uncomfortable when I do wrong. We feel the standard pressing on us, but Lewis goes on to say there's a problem. None of us are observing this standard. Lewis says this, I am only trying to call attention to the fact that this year or this month or more likely this very day, we have failed to practice ourselves and the kind of behavior that we expect from other people. He says all cultures agree in prescribing behaviors which their adherents fail to practice. All men stand under condemnation and this condemnation does not come by alien code of ethics, but by their own. And men therefore are conscious of guilt. Some people around the world are trying very, very hard to live up to this moral law. They're trying to live lives that are good and that are pleasing to God. And I will argue some much more than others are trying hard. Here's an example of a guy who tried his very best to live a life pleasing to God. He's a Hindu. His name is Mahatma Gandhi, if you don't recognize him. And in his autobiography, it's almost painful to read his account, but he says this, it is an unbroken torture to me that I am still so far from him whom I know governs my every breath, sorry, whom I know governs every breath of my life and whose offspring I am. I know it is because of the evil passions within me that keep me so far from him yet I cannot get away from them. Guys, it's the human condition. Gandhi, yourself, myself, all of us are mindful of a gap that exists between us and God. What's causing this gap? It's our conduct. We are mindful that there is a something in our behavior that has separated us from God. And I will tell you, in my own experience as a 21-year-old university student sitting across the table in a cafeteria from a guy named Rod, I did not need to be convinced of this. Never read the Bible, never heard of Jesus. And I, Rod had told me, you're sinful. And I'm like, yeah, I know it. And he says, do you realize that uh, there's a gap between you and God? I'm like, yeah, I'm very clear on that. I knew without Rod having to tell me that if I was to die that day at that moment, that it was gonna be a bad day for me. I may have wanted to hope that God would maybe give me a generous rounding error as he judged my conduct or that maybe he might charitably look the other way when evaluating the decisions I've made in this life. But I knew at bottom that if God is truly all-knowing and all-seeing, I wasn't gonna survive that examination that I couldn't hold my head up high if I was to encounter God in that moment because I knew my rap sheet was as long as my arm. And the Bible agrees with this. If we look at the Bible, it says stuff like this. It says your sins have separated you from your God. It says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
It says, do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? It says the wages of sin is death. The Bible agrees in this basic picture that there's a gap between God and man and that gap is caused by sin. Sin just means moral imperfection, that we do not live up to the standards of conduct that have been imprinted on us. That's why we're conscious of the emotion of guilt. But guys, this is where Jesus comes in. Jesus lived a perfectly sinless life. He's the only person who has ever lived that didn't break any of God's commands. And if it is in fact our sin that separates us from God and Jesus never sinned, then he doesn't experience this gap between man and God. Now, as you may have heard some 2,000 years ago, this guy named Jesus, he died on a cross. An innocent man was put to death. And you might say, well, what does that have to do with me? You guys, Jesus offers a gift. He offers functionally to stand in the gap for you and to take your sins upon himself. He offers to assume your sinfulness in exchange for his perfection. He imparts to you his righteousness so that you can stand before a holy God with your head held high. In the meantime, he takes the sin that is yours and puts it upon himself, functionally declaring himself guilty of your offenses. In this glorious exchange, we get to basically um, have Jesus be the vehicle through which we find a right standing with God. And the Bible says it this way. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I love that verse. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Why is Jesus the only way? Guys, it's because Jesus is the only one who has solved the problem of sin. This is the core issue. Why can't Muhammad save you? Why can't Buddha save you? Why can't Confucius save you? Why can't Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormon church, save you? It's because they can't solve the problem of sin. They can't do anything to help you with your sinful state because they're busy paying for their own sins. This is not intolerance. This is not bigotry. This is not hatefulness. It's simple math. They can't help you with your situation because they don't have the resources to make the payment to God. Only one person does, and that is Jesus Christ. He is the only person who has ever lived who is able to help you with your predicament. No one else has got the resources, plain and simple. By the way, that's why Muhammad's grave is still occupied. That's why Joseph Smith's grave is still occupied. Same with Buddha. These guys are still on the ground. Why? Because the wages of their sin is also death. Jesus knew no sin. And his grave is empty, my friends. One author says it this way. Ponder the achievement of God. He doesn't condone our sin, nor does he compromise his standard. He doesn't ignore our rebellion, nor does he relax his demands. Rather than dismiss our sin, he assumes our sin, and incredibly sentences himself. 
God's holiness is honored, our sin is punished, and we are redeemed. God is still God, the wages of sin is still death, and we are made perfect in the glorious exchange that is available to all of us because of the cross. Now, with the time that remains, I've got one objection that I hear comes up, I'd say quite frequently, when you go down this type of a conversation with someone who's exploring the gospel or is learning about Jesus Christ. And the objection goes something like this. Mike, as long as my good deeds outnumber my bad deeds, God will accept me, right? I mean, as long as there's enough good deeds in my life that kind of offset or counterbalance the bad deeds, we can make this ledger work, right? This, this math equation still balances in my favor, right? Well, I will tell you that this is a works-based salvation formula, and we shouldn't be surprised to find this because as we learned from week two, literally every other religious belief system has a, has a works-based salvation formula that helps them in their eyes get to God. Every religion believes this. Uh, the Quran spells this out very clearly in Surah 23. The Book of Mormon puts forth this type of a math equation as well. Brigham Young himself, one of the early teachers of the Mormon church, speaks to this. But guys, this way of thinking presupposes that as long as my good deeds on one side of the scale outweigh my bad deeds on the other side, that God will somehow approve of me, that he will somehow accept me. And I will tell you that if you just engage your mind on this, there's two problems with this way of thinking. Let's just charitably uh, offer that maybe you can offset your bad deeds with your good deeds. Let's just, let's just assume that that can work mathematically. The first problem with this way of thinking is this. How do you know when you've done enough good deeds to offset your bad deeds? How will you ever know when you've done enough? Especially if Jesus is right when he teaches in the Sermon on the Mount that it's not, just, it's not just your deeds that count as sins, but it's your thoughts and it's your intentions that also get counted as sins, right? Jesus says things like, when you've looked upon a woman lustfully, you've already engaged in adultery with her in your mind. And then it's your thoughts that also count as sins against you. Holy cow, I might be able to... Tr pile up some good deeds to offset my bad deeds, but if my thoughts, my intentions count as sins as well, guys, I'm in a lot of trouble. I don't have any way to mount up enough good deeds on one side of the scale to offset my sins. But the second problem with this equation is even more grievous, and that's this. This way of thinking, it completely ignores the essence of the way that law works. According to law, in any theory of law, you cannot stack up the times that you've upheld the law and use that to try to counterbalance times when you have kept the law. Let me give you an example of this. You're driving home from church today, and let's say you're going up, uh, you know, Mac Hatcher or wherever home is for you, and you're tearing along the road and you're going 75 miles an hour, and all of a sudden, your rearview mirror, you see police lights, they're, they're pulling you over. And the, the police officer, a nice man, says, Going a little fast today, aren't you? Like, what do you mean? So, well, you're going 75 miles an hour. The speed limit here is 40. Okay? He says, can I please have your license and your registration? Like, whoa, 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 whoa. What, what do you mean? Whoa, whoa, whoa. You're going too fast here, Mr. Officer. I've driven this road a thousand times before today. And every other time I've driven Mac Hatcher, I've gone no more than 40 miles an hour ever. What's he gonna say to you? You're going fast today. 
license and registration. I'll be right back with your citation. Isn't that interesting? You can cite 1,000 times that you have kept the law, but the one time that you do not, you are guilty of the full weight of the law. Why is that? Because the law presumes perfect obedience and obeying it fully only keeps you square with the house. You guys, if the Bible is right and that the wages of sin is death, then at your very first offense, you are a dead man and the whole weight of the law is against you. It only takes one offense to set you at odds with God and you cannot counterbalance the scale because you are guilty. But I've got good news for you this morning. God is offering you a pardon on his terms. You can either accept the pardon that God offers through his son, Jesus Christ, and go free, or you can reject the pardon that God offers and you can choose to pay for your own sins on your own. But it's your choice. Salvation, my friends, is a free gift. But even a free gift needs to be not only offered, but accepted in order for it to be yours. And I wanna read over you the very first Bible verse that was ever quoted to me when I sat down in a cafeteria many years ago. It reads like this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. 